Hey, hey, folks, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Uh, please join us for Chapter 6 of Catch 22 by Joseph Heller. <laughs> Musical coughs. Hello, Rue. Hello, Dave. My camera is opposite to where your face is, so this is very confusing. But yes, hello. <laughs> she She's acting like a bobblehead, folks. Back I'm and looking forth and like back. watching a tennis game. Ah, yeah, yeah. That, that That's a more apt metaphor. Uh, so uh, it is a Thursday morning. Um, it is quite sunny, temperate out. Uh, we just had um, massive flooding just a couple days ago, and now things are leveling out. Yes, um, it's been pretty rough. Northern New South Wales got northern and central New South Wales got probably hit the worst. And Sydney flooded apparently. Yeah, yeah, it, sections of Sydney, but yes. Um, so it like which... it basically hit the whole east coast of Australia. But you know what I learned about uh, the massive flooding. Uh, is that because uh, I haven't been in this apartment during we, we get these massive hits of rain maybe once every few years, like to this level, at least. Mm. Um, and this isn't as bad as like the one that happened 10 years ago. That that was pretty mm. nasty. But I've learned that the door frame of my room warps. And when it got like yeah. the last the last day of continual rain Basically, I had to exert a lot of effort just to open my door. <laughs> that's that's the thing that happens. I think this must be just anyone who has a door that is predominantly wood. Mm. So wooden doors in this weather. Um, yeah, it, it when it's rained for that long, it tends to um, be interesting. It becomes a challenge to enter and exit rooms. <laughs> Especially when you have no, no physical strength in your, your um, like in one arm. Mm. Uh, then it's extra, extra round. Well, so, also like especially in the evening, like my roommates have gone to sleep, and like I gotta open this quietly. <laughs> that's that's where you you essentially it's, you you t- toss up between: do I close the door for privacy, or do I just leave it open until I've I've done all the business I need to do for the evening and then close it because it's just le- less disruptive. Yes, it's difficult. How to combine courtesy with practical considerations and personal boundaries. Advanced, uh, as I'm sorry, I'm going to say the thing that a lot of people hate. Advanced adulting. One of, like it's this is uh, uh, advanced adulting one one two. I guess it's not a one one course. So it's a roommating. <laughs> Room advanced advanced bachelor of advanced adulting, um, and then underneath is like subject. Roommating. <laughs> emphasis, emphasis on the bachelor. Bachelor. Yes. Emphasis on the bachelor. That was a deliberate pun. You're yes. welcome, folks. You're welcome. They've done worse puns this week. Terrible, terrible puns. I, I, I had some, um, uh, what are they called? I have some ones I'm very proud of. I can't actually tell you what they are uh, because the the setup would be so lengthy that uh everyone's eyes would glaze over and the payoff wouldn't be worth it um you you know sometimes 
you've built up a history with a certain person you can let a wordplay happen and it, it basically combines all that history and it's just right place right time yes yes i, th- I think most puns are very of the moment it, it's like yes. this scenario is just ripe for wordplay and and you let it rip and Whereas jokes, you know, the whole set-up punchline thing can easily be retold out of their original birth. I, I think wordplay is very ephemeral. I love the fact that last week we uh, had a very heavy focus on humor types and appropriateness of humor. And da, da, da. and now we're dissecting the difference between a pun and a general joke. Where it's like advanced humor uh sorry i'm having one of these i'm teaching this week and <laughs> for the next few weeks so i'm thinking in terms of courses and substructures and ensuring accessibility and you know teaching objectives and clarifying the criteria and things so my, my mind is in that's why hence advanced adulting 101 etc etc of course uh, of course of course of course of course of course of course, yes, yes. Back to like last week, we uh, our post chapter discussion was not as lengthy as it usually is. Uh, I think there are a couple reasons for that. One, you did have to get going. Two was we did a lot of discussion in the chapter. Um, yes, because there was a lot to talk about as it was happening. But I also said that maybe. This happened with Brave New World, where we would need the time away from the book to be able to discuss it more competently uh, before the next chapter on the next episode. There are, I think there are aspects to this, which is because it is, so in my opinion, it's the way that it's written, and I'm sure other people, again, in my opinion, that probably reflects a big chunk of the literary crowd. I feel that it's written in a way so that we get an inkling of how traumatic it's been and mm. how disjointed you end up being in terms of your even your timeline your anything can set you off anything can connect you back to that to to the horror and the trauma that you've experienced and it it connects and and the idea that war just becomes the way that Helen is depicting war is that it's just this, this, uh, what doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it has an end in sight. It just feels constant and all your, your sense of now and then and past the, the future and the past and the present all kind of merge. Um, in the, the way he's describing these events, his timeline is all over the place as others will like it's it's very clear but the reason his timeline is all over the place is also because it just feels like it's never going to end so yeah are you saying war is heller hey that's terrible but yes well no uh, actually there was a really good line from mash on that which i can't remember entirely i'll paraphrase it but the idea is that war is war and hell is hell because in war it's everyone's affected innocent guilty you know it doesn't matter who you are you're affected by it if you are in that that area right whereas the at least in a hypothetical concept of hell the construct of hell as described by uh, most uh, belief systems hell is where those who are guilty get punished mm. so it's not meant to affect the the, the innocent mm. 
Um, so arguably, if you wanted to take the hypothetical concept of hell and juxtapose it with war, war is worse. Yeah. Which Because war is indiscriminate. Yes. Because war affects all, you know, whether it's people who are literally in the war zone who are affected directly, whether they are the local population, whether they are the quote-unquote, uh, was it, the casualties, which is a terrible word. Uh, the incidentals, again, terrible word. And then those, when they return from war, how soldiers are treated by the society in which they are in, but also the, the, how this impacts on families of those who have been affected by war and combat or have fled war as a refugee or have experienced the hardships. You know, so it's, I think it's something that we for generations will, if we eventually can, we've raised this up, I raised it up earlier as a concept, like if we eventually can distance ourselves from, from the, the, the concept of warfare and war, if we can move away from that, it's still going to take generations to address the harm that's been caused by our historical engagement yeah. in war and warfare. Well, and it's well, going to be generations of healing, man. It's yeah. Cause um, it also affects the land, like where a war takes oh, yes, place. Yes. Um, you know, there are still huge amounts of, uh, land around the world that have landmines all through them. There's landmines, there's Agent Orange, there's the fact that they have to, they essentially engage in forms of fairly aggressive deforestation to create temporary structures. Mm. There's no cleanup, the rubbish, the um, actual actual rubbish from war, like all the shrapnel and the, what's left from ordnance and the structural integrity that's affecting buildings, so they have to rebuild a whole bunch of things or repair a bunch of so it's, it's the, Just the consumption of material in in war is is immense and that's not even starting to look at the human cost in terms of death disability uh, mental health uh, social uh, ramifications societal structure everything and funding i mean financially we fund something that is it is called the war machine for a reason it's mm. not it's it's there to consume and to consume people and finances it's a real mess and you could argue that we have tried this method and imagine the amount of energy and finances and all these things that we invest currently in warfare again from previous episodes folks if you, you've caught up i'm not a pacifist by any means but if you like that unnecessary engagement it's really if we in invested the amount that we do in war in terms of time, energy, and finances and materials in actually trying to reach peaceful, amicable solutions, things that benefit everyone and not just a select few, all these things, we, how, how much, like, we've tried war. We, we know what it costs. We know it costs a lot more than you get out of it. Like, so, yes. I think that that's the pro proposal here. Like maybe invest, and this is not to disrespect the actions of those who have had to go and, and, and the expression is serve their country, but maybe there are other ways to serve as well. Is the suggestion hmm. here, putting footwork, especially I think in the context of how we're seeing Heller describe this absolute 
this farcical kind of situation of generals who are being petty to each other, <laughs> communications officers that just cause that that poopster, doctors who are essentially incompetent and are just being dragged into this mess. Um, again, we know that this is almost like a um, this is a very extreme depiction, but it's also pointing out some of the major flaws and issues in the, in these uh, situations. Uh, well, also, uh, just, yeah, the the mental toll, how um, no one is coping well uh, no. in this book. No character is uh, kind of free of the... Um, it, it's, it's almost like madness is an airborne disease in this book. Yes, not that we want to encourage that as a as a as a principle or an understanding because it's not how mental illnesses work. But um, or or um, kind of like a shared psychosis in in the in the book as a, the way it's crafted. Yes, I mean it's it's it is more that they are all in this incredibly inappropriate. Like they're in a space where the human mind and body is not meant to be. Yeah, um, well, that's another thing. Like war is so unnatural. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about how because of our lizard brain and our ancestry, humans are violent by nature. I I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we've got. I think violence is easy. You know that that emotional response of anger is very easy to give into, and it, it, look. It takes... And I'm sure somewhere back way when when our ancestors had to survive, you know, a pack of wolves attacking them, the violence was something. I don't want to say violence was the answer, but you know, in that situation, that impulse to defend the family and defend the clan, and defend the yeah, that fair, that like that was what would happen. But in terms of people, yeah, I I don't think that. War okay. The way we can, we could maybe say it is war doesn't have to be a, a part of our lives. That's like as a humanity speaking, it doesn't have to be. It's unnecessary. There is no necessity in it. We already know it harms people generally, but also it's not an environment that is conducive to health. Like if we're if our concern is the well being of everyone on this planet, if that was the concern then we wouldn't be putting people in a situation that is torturous torturous and, and, and harmful just for the sake of someone else's uh, things that they want done. Like, it's it's incredibly violating. It's very violating as a concept. And I think this is... Heller actually depicts it really well. Just that violating nature of war. Like, even not, not the... Not that, that Dr. Danica is my favorite doctor here, but <laughs> the, you know, even the way that Danica goes, well, war was really good until I got dragged in. <laughs> it's yeah. good for business until I got dragged in. And, and, and others were also meant, like, it came up as well, like, oh, war is great for, for this person because for them, they can financially have an advantage or they can avoid their horrible situation at home. You've got Chief who, who mm -hmm. you know, it was all he had left, really, was to enlist. Yeah, so it's it's a desperation, and it's a it's either desperate or it's foisted upon them. They're forced. Either way, you're forced into this situation. 
in, in this in this particular book, it, whether it's financial, whether it's I mean, arguably anyone who's engaged is forced in that situation because they're either programmed through social conditioning. Mm, Appleby social probably program. like left yep. at the chance to enlist. Yes, he he's a true patriot, right? But he's a true patriot who's unable to. I mean, he has flies in his eyes. He's unable to see any other perspective than his own. As we've we've come and, to know. and I mean I don't know the full story yet. Uh, I think I can say that with every character, but Habermeyer feels like that archetype where he joined up because it gives him a license to actually give in to like violent impulses. Yes, like this seems like the kid that who was in the neighborhood who tortured cats kind of situation, and now he's got an outlet for his nature. That and I wouldn't even say it's not nature. His his pathologies in this case. Mm. Um, so you've got these people that are. So whether you you volunteer or whether you are like so whether you enlist or whether you are drafted, there are factors that have influenced your ability to make choices. They are compromised. You are not making an informed choice. And if you are making an informed choice and you are, yay, let's go kill people, then probably in general society, you'd also not be um, someone, you'd be in a normal normal society. Within your general society, you'd be considered a, a, pre, a clear and present danger to the population, in which case you would most likely be arrested or, or like there'd be, there'd be things going on there. So the chances of you... If you want to go somewhere in order to kill people, there's something fundamentally that needs to be addressed in your character and your your mind. Mm. Um, that's that's the way that I, I see it as well. So, yeah, war is one of those uh, times when like murder and violence are sanctioned by the state. Yes, and then when when these these and again when these poor when these veterans return. I would su- like to suggest that based on just a general idea of what's going on without looking at the statistics even closely, the amount of support that is available to transition ex- former soldiers back into quote unquote normal society is extremely limited and inadequate for the And need. from from what I understand, it's one of those uh, social services that has been gutted over time as well yes as i phrased inadequate significantly inadequate but yeah so it's it's interesting we've got these things of um there's a reason that that uh yossarian really doesn't want to like he's he's in that state well yeah that that thing i said uh last episode about how harrowing one of these flight missions would be on the nerves of any man and you know they, they survive that mission suddenly it's like the next day it's like okay do it again you've got 49 more of these and then we're not even going to let you go after that that was all a ruse yeah yeah and, and we've got this whole situation and then i mean the, the ending of the last chapter so chapter five was the description very vivid description of the mission that was in um over, I think it's over Agincourt, if I'm not Avignon. wrong. Avignon, sorry. I get confused between Henry V and here. So yes, Avignon. So over Avignon, that was the, this was their mission over Avignon, and this is what we have a better idea of what was going on. It's still a bit hectic, but we have a better insight as to why Ysterian is so stressed about 
the structure of the the planes, about the new navigator who's terrible and actually um, causes more problems than he's worth, doesn't have a sense of survival. There is a German expression which is life tired, which is um, not quite what it sounds like. Life tired is just someone who takes risks or is completely oblivious or does not feel maybe an appreciation of the necessity to, to do things that will enable survival. No um, self-preservation. Yes, yes. And what it seems like is uh, the new... Arfie. Um, so yeah, Arfie appears to lack this mm. quality. Well, the, well, the book, of, book flat out says he doesn't have the brains to be scared. No. Well, he's he just seems completely not... Co- like, doesn't understand the implications of what's going on. When, yeah. he, when he's right bang smack in the middle of it and doesn't understand that he is actually disruptive and when he keeps getting banished to the back, keeps coming forward. <laughs> it's, uh, it reminds me of a Bill Burr line in one of the stand-up he's going, and when something's going down, ju- don't just sit there like it's a movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I could see that... Um, I could see... I mean, not that I think Yossarian's going to snap right now, but I could see him snapping and just, you know, shooting Arfie. Hmm. Um, just for the protection of the entire team. You know, I was going to say that's out of character, but then he, we did discuss that when he threatened to machine gun down the the officers singing in the officer tent, we didn't yeah. think he was really kidding. No, and also his his character is extremely literal. That's that's right. He probably doesn't really know how to kid. No, I, well, even when he is kidding, he's not necessarily kidding. So what others might think of as a as a just a joke, it's not a, necessarily a joke. Um, the same goes with his feelings around Arfie. So we, I mean, we had before. I know that I'm just seeing the top of the chapter. It's it's Hungry Joe. Hungry Joe in one of the previous chapters shot at Havemeyer. Mm. And we I I think he's the one that's been wailing in his tent all night as well. He's yes. he's off by the. Um, the higher ups because no one else wants to sleep near. Yeah, him. and I mean we don't even know if Habermeyer has been killed or not because of the the way that this is chronologic. Mm. This is not chronologically at all in order, so we don't know what happened. Whether he shot him and then other things happened, or whether he shot him and he's just dead now and he's been sent home or whatever. We know nothing. Um, really, we just know at some stage, Hungry Joe shoots Habermeyer. Well, shoots his tent. Shoots at his tent, yes. So the next question is that, for example, whether that's almost like the kind of relationship Yossarian has with Arfi, where mm. Arfi is constantly, like, Yossarian feels Arfi is actually endangering them in this mission, is going to be a problem and, and a source of danger, whereas Hungry Joe may have that kind of feeling towards Havemeyer because he keeps endangering them. Yeah, that that did come up before about how most of uh, his men hate him because he just flies completely straight over the bombing target. Yeah, which that endangers everyone, and he doesn't care if anyone gets killed, kind of situation. Mm. So it's it's uh, it's that kind of um, thing. So I'm interested in knowing if we're going to find out what happened with Hungry Joe now. Okay, because it'll be. I just I wonder if they'll address the fact that he shot Havemeyer. <laughs> And and also that's a, that's a valid question because you know these chapters have been titled after characters, but we never really get the full chapter about the character. No, the story is not necessarily linear. 
It's a non-linear story. Chapter 6, Hungry Joe. Hungry Joe did have 50 missions, but they were no help. He had his bags packed and was waiting again to go home. At night, he had eerie, ear-splitting nightmares that kept everyone in the squadron awake but Hubble, the 15-year-old pilot who had lied about his age to get into the army and lived with his pet cat in the same tent with Hungry Joe. Hubble was a light sleeper, but claimed he never heard Hungry Joe scream. Hungry Joe was sick. So what? Dr. Nika snarled resentfully. I had it made, I tell you. Fifty grand a year I was knocking down, and almost all of it tax-free, since I made my customers pay me in cash. I had the strongest trade association in the world backing me up. And look what happened. Just when I was all set to really start stashing it away, they had to manufacture fascism and start a war horrible enough to affect even me. I got a laugh when I hear someone like Hungry Joe screaming his brains out every night. I really got a laugh. He's sick. How does he think I feel? Mm. Huh? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I have a feeling anytime anyone goes to Dr. Nika with any problem, that is his answer. You think mm. you've got a problem. Yeah, but also, Danica, uh, with the Catch-22, if you were really mad and you wouldn't know, kind of thing, yeah. Mm. Hungry Joe was too firmly embedded in calamities of his own to care how Dr. Nika felt. There were the noises, for instance. Small ones enraged him, and he hollered himself hoarse at Arfi for the wet sucking sounds he made puffing on his pipe. At Orr for tinkering. At McWatt for the explosive snap he gave each card he turned over when he dealt at blackjack or poker. At Dobbs for letting his teeth chatter as he went blundering clumsily about bumping into things. Hungry Joe was a throbbing, ragged mass of motile irritability. The steady ticking of a watch in a quiet room crashed like torture against his unshielded brain. Listen, kid, he explained harshly to Huffle very late one evening. If you want to live in this tent, you've got to do like I do. You've got to roll your wristwatch up in a pair of wool socks every night and keep it at the bottom of your footlocker on the other side of the room. Huppel thrust his jaw out defiantly to let Hungry Joe know he couldn't be pushed around and then did exactly as he had been told. <laughs> Hungry Joe was a jumpy, emaciated wretch with a fleshless face of dingy skin and bone and twitching veins squirming subcutaneously in the blackened hollows behind his eyes like severed sections of snake. It was a desolate, cratered face, sooty with care like an abandoned mining town. Hungry Joe ate voraciously, gnawed incessantly at the tips of his fingers, stammered, choked, itched, sweated, salivated, and sprang from spot to spot fanatically with an intricate black camera with which he was always trying to take pictures of naked girls. They never came out. He was always forgetting to put film in the camera or turn on lights or remove the cover from the lens opening. It wasn't easy persuading naked girls to pose, but Hungry Joe had the knack. Me big man, he would shout. Me big photographer from Life magazine. Big picture on heap big cover. See, see, see. Hollywood star. Multi-dinero. Multi-divorces. Multi-ficky-fick all day long. Few women anywhere could resist such wily cajolery, and prostitutes would spring to their feet eagerly and hurl themselves into whatever fantastic poses he requested for them. Women killed Hungry Joe. His response to them as sexual beings was one of frenzied worship and idolatry. They were lovely, satisfying, maddening manifestations of the miraculous instruments of pleasure too powerful to be measured, 
too keen to be endured, and too exquisite to be intended for employment by a base unworthy man. He could interpret their naked presence in his hands only as a cosmic oversight destined to be rectified speedily, and he was driven always to make what carnal use of them he could in the fleeting moment or two he felt he had for someone caught wise and whisked them away. He could never decide whether to furgle them or photograph them, for he had found it impossible to do both simultaneously. In fact, he was finding it almost impossible to do either, so scrambled were his powers of performance by the compulsive need for haste that invariably possessed him. The pictures never came out, and Hungry Joe never got in. The odd thing was that in civilian life, Hungry Joe really had been a photographer for Life magazine. He was a hero now, the biggest hero the Air Force had, Yusarian felt, for he had flown more combat towards the duty than any other hero the Air Force had. He had flown six combat towards the duty. Hungry Joe had finished flying his first combat tour of duty when 25 missions were all that were necessary for him to pack his bags, write happy letters home, and begin hounding Sergeant Towser humorously for the arrival of the orders rotating him back to the States. While he waited, he spent each day shuffling rhythmically around the entrance of the operations tent, making boisterous wisecracks to everybody who came by and jocosely calling Sergeant Towser a lousy son of a bitch every time Sergeant Towser popped out of the orderly room. Hungry Joe had finished flying his first 25 missions during the week of the Salerno beachhead when Yasserian was laid up in the hospital with a burst of clap he had caught on a low-level mission over a whack in bushes on a supply flight to Marrakesh. Yasserian did his best to catch up with Hungry Joe and almost did, flying six missions in six days, but his 23rd mission was to Arezzo, where Colonel Nevers was killed, and that was as close as he had ever been able to come to going home. The next day, Colonel Cathcart was there, brimming with tough pride in his new outfit and celebrating his assumption of command by raising the number of missions required from 25 to 30. Hungry Joe unpacked his bags and rewrote the happy letters home. He stopped hounding Sergeant Towser humorously. He began hating Sergeant Towser, focusing all blame upon him venomously, even though he knew Sergeant Towser had nothing to do with the arrival of Colonel Cathcart or the delay in the processing of shipping orders that might have rescued him seven days earlier and five times since. Hungry Joe could no longer stand the strain of waiting for shipping orders and crumbled promptly into ruin every time he finished another tour of duty. Each time he was taken off combat status, he gave a big party for the little circle of friends he had. He broke out the bottles of bourbon he had managed to buy on his four-day weekly circuits with the courier plane, and laughed, sang, shuffled, and shouted in a festival of inebriated ecstasy until he could no longer keep awake and receded peacefully into slumber. As soon as Yasserian, Nately, and Dunbar put him to bed, he began screaming in his sleep. In the morning, he stepped from his tent looking haggard, fearful, and guilt-ridden, an eaten shell of a human building rocking perilously on the brink of collapse. The nightmares appeared to Hungry Joe with celestial punctuality every single night he spent in the squadron throughout the whole harrowing ordeal when he was not flying combat missions and was waiting once again for the orders sending him home that never came. Impressionable men in the squadron like Dobbs and Captain Flume were so deeply disturbed by Hungry Joe's shrieking nightmares that they would begin to have shrieking nightmares of their own, and the piercing obscenities they flung into the air every night from their separate places in the squadron 
rang against each other in the darkness, romantically like the mating calls of songbirds with filthy minds. Colonel Korn acted decisively to arrest what seemed to him to be the beginning of an wholesome trend in Major Major's squadron. The solution he provided was to have Hungry Joe fly the courier ship once a week, removing him from the squadron for four nights, and the remedy, like all Colonel Korn's remedies, was successful. Every time Colonel Cathcart increased the number of missions and returned Hungry Joe to combat duty, the nightmare stopped, and Hungry Joe settled down into a normal state of terror with a smile of relief. Yasserian read Hungry Joe's shrunken face like a headline. It was good when Hungry Joe looked bad, and terrible when Hungry Joe looked good. Hungry Joe's inverted set of responses was a curious phenomenon to everyone but Hungry Joe, who denied the whole thing stubbornly. Who dreams, he answered, when Yasserian asked him what he dreamed about. Joe, why don't you go see Dr. Nika, Yasserian advised. Why should I go see Dr. Nika? I'm not sick. What about your nightmares? I don't have nightmares, Hungry Joe lied. Maybe he can do something about them. There's nothing wrong with nightmares, Hungry Joe answered. Everybody has nightmares. Yasserian thought he had him. Every night? he asked. Why not every night, Hungry Joe demanded. And suddenly it all made sense. Why not every night indeed? It made sense to cry out in pain every night. It made more sense than Appleby, who was a stickler for regulations and had ordered Kraft to order Yesarian to take his Atterbrine tablets on the flight overseas after Yesarian and Appleby had stopped talking to each other. Hungry Joe made more sense than Kraft, too, who was dead, dumped unceremoniously into doom over Ferreira by an exploding engine after Yesarian took his flight of six planes in over the target a second time. The group had missed the bridge at Ferreira again for the seventh straight day with a bombsite that could put bombs into a pickle barrel at 40,000 feet, and one whole week had already passed since Colonel Cathcart had volunteered to have his men destroy the bridge in 24 hours. Kraft was a skinny, harmless kid from Pennsylvania who wanted only to be liked, and was destined to be disappointed in even so humble and degrading an ambition. Instead of being liked, he was dead a bleeding cinder on the barbarous pile that nobody had heard in those last precious moments while the plane with one wing plummeted. He had lived innocuously for a little while, and then had gone down in flames over Ferreira on the seventh day, while God was resting, when McGuaw turned and the Assyrian guided him in over the target on a second bomb run because Arfi was confused and the Assyrian had been unable to drop his bombs the first time. I guess we do have to go back again, don't we? McWatt had said somberly over the intercom. I guess we do, said Yasarian. Do we? said McWatt. Yeah. Oh well, sang McWatt. What the hell? And back they had gone, while the planes and the other flights circled safely off in the distance, and every crashing cannon in the Hermann Gearing division below was busy crashing shells, this time only at them. Colonel Cathcart had courage, and never hesitated to volunteer his men for any target available. No target was too dangerous for his group to attack, just as no shot was too difficult for Appleby to handle on the ping-pong table. Appleby was a good pilot and a superhuman ping-pong player, with flies in his eyes who never lost a point. Twenty-one serves were all it ever took for Appleby to disgrace another opponent. His prowess on the ping-pong table was legendary, and Appleby won every game he started until the night Ord got tipsy on gin and juice and smashed open Appleby's forehead with his paddle 
after Appleby had smashed back each of Orr's first five serves. Orr leaped on top of the table after hurling his paddle and came sailing off the other end in a running broad jump with both feet planted squarely in Appleby's face. Pandemonium broke loose. It took almost a full minute for Appleby to disentangle himself from Orr's flailing arms and legs and grope his way to his feet. With Orr held off the ground before him by the shirt front in one hand and his other arm drawn back in a fist to smite him dead. And at that moment, Yesarian stepped forward and took Orr away from him. It was a night of surprises for Appleby, who was as large as Yesarian and as strong, and who swung at Yesarian as hard as he could with a punch that flooded Chief White Halfoat with such joyous excitement that he turned and busted Colonel Moodis in the nose with a punch that filled General Dreidel with such mellow gratification that he had Colonel Cathcart throw the chaplain out of the officers' club and ordered Chief White Halfoat moved into Dr. Nika's tent, where he could be under a doctor's care 24 hours a day and be kept in good enough physical condition to bust Colonel Moodis in the nose again whenever General Dreidel wanted him to. Sometimes General Dreidel makes special trips down from wing headquarters with Colonel Moodis and his nurse just to have Chief White Halfoat bust his son-in-law in the nose. Chief White Halfoat would much rather have remained in the trailer he shared with Captain Flume, the silent haunted squadron public relations officer who spent most of each evening developing the pictures he took during the day to be sent out with his publicity releases. Captain Flume spent as much of each evening as he could working in his darkroom and then lay down on his cot with his fingers crossed and a rabbit's foot around his neck and tried with all his might to stay awake. He lived in mortal fear of Chief White Halfout. Captain Flume was obsessed with the idea that Chief White Halfout would tiptoe up to his cot one night when he was sound asleep and slit his throat open for him from ear to ear. Captain Flume had obtained this idea from Chief White Halfout himself, who did tiptoe up to his cot one night as he was dozing off, to hiss portentously that one night when he, Captain Flume, was sound asleep, he, Chief White Halfout, was going to slit his throat open for him from ear to ear. Captain Flume turned to ice, his eyes flung open wide, staring directly up into Chief White Halfout's, glinting drunkenly only inches away. Why? Captain Flume managed to croak finally. Why not? was Chief White Halfout's answer. Each night after that, Captain Flume forced himself to keep awake as long as possible. He was aided immeasurably by Hungry Joe's nightmares. Listening so intently to Hungry Joe's maniacal howling night after night, Captain Flume grew to hate him and began wishing that Chief White Halfoot would tiptoe up to his cot one night and slit his throat open for him from ear to ear. Actually, Captain Flume slept like a log most nights and merely dreamed he was awake. So convincing were these dreams of lying awake that he woke from them each morning in complete exhaustion and fell right back to sleep. Chief White Halfoot had grown almost fond of Captain Flume since his amazing metamorphosis. Captain Flume had entered his bed that night a buoyant extrovert and left it the next morning a brooding introvert, and Chief White Halfoot proudly regarded the new Captain Flume as his own creation. He had never intended to slit Captain Flume's throat open for him from ear to ear. Threatening to do so was merely his idea of a joke, like dying of pneumonia, busting Colonel Moodis in the nose, or challenging Doc Danica to Indian wrestle. All Chief White Halfoot wanted to do when he staggered in drunk each night was go right to sleep, and Hungry Joe often made that impossible. Hungry Joe's nightmares gave Chief White Halfoot the heebie-jeebies, 
and he often wished that someone would tiptoe into Hungry Joe's tent, lift Hubble's cat off his face, and slit his throat open for him from ear to ear, so that everybody in the squadron but Captain Flume could get a good night's sleep. Even though Chief White Halfoak kept busting General Moodis in the nose for General Dreagle's benefit, he was still outside the pale. Also outside the pale was Major Major, the squadron commander, who had found out that the same time he found out that he was squadron commander from Colonel Cathcart, who came blasting into the squadron in his hopped-up jeep the day after Major Duluth was killed over Perugia. Colonel Cathcart slammed to a screeching stop inches short of the railroad ditch separating the nose of his jeep from the lopsided basketball court on the other side, from which Major Major was eventually driven by the kicks and shoves and stones and punches of the men who had almost become his friends. You're the new squadron commander, Colonel Cathcart had bellowed across the ditch at him, but don't think it means anything, because it doesn't. All it means is that you're the new squadron commander. And Colonel Cathcart had roared away as abruptly as he'd come, whipping the jeep around with a vicious spinning of wheels that sent a spray of fine grit blowing into Major Major's face. Major Major was immobilized by the news. He stood speechless, lanky, and gawking, with a scuffed basketball in his long hands as the seeds of rancor sown so swiftly by Colonel Cathcart took root in soldiers around him who had been playing basketball with him and who had let him come as close to making friends with them as anyone had ever let him come before. The whites of his moony eyes grew large and misty as his mouth struggled yearningly and lost against the familiar, impregnable loneliness drifting in around him again like suffocating fog. Like all the other officers at group headquarters except Major Danby, Colonel Cathcart was infused with the democratic spirit. He believed that all men were created equal, and he therefore spurned all men outside group headquarters with equal fervor. Nevertheless, he believed in his men. As he told them frequently in the briefing room, he believed they were at least ten missions better than any other outfit and felt like any who did not share this confidence he had placed in them could get the hell out. The only way they could get the hell out, though, as Yasarian learned when he flew to visit XPFC Wintergreen, was by flying the extra ten missions. So that's the confusing part. It's like, if you don't think you can, it's again this Catch-22 mm-hmm. business of, if you can't, if you um, don't think you think you can get out, but the only way you can get out is by doing the actual thing. What? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and, and he only does that because he believes his men are so much better. They're capable of more, so... I'm pushing Yeah, them. but remember, Colonel Cathcart was courageous. He was very, um, uh, very courageous. Uh, he he would offer his men to do the most impossible things mm-hmm. in the most impossible time frames. Yeah, kind kind of the uh, the joke in Futurama about Zapranig and being commended for throwing waves upon waves of his own men until he achieves victory. I still don't get it. Isarian protested. Is Doctor Nika right or isn't he? How many did he say? Forty. Danica was telling the truth, XPFC Wintergreen admitted. Forty missions is all you have to fly as far as 27th Air Force Headquarters is concerned. The Assyrian was jubilant. Then I can go home, right? I've got 48. No, you can't go home, XPFC Wintergreen corrected him. Are you crazy or something? Why not? Catch-22. Catch-22? The Assyrian was stunned. What the hell has Catch-22 got to do with it? Catch-22, Dr. Nika answered patiently when Hungry Joe had flown the Assyrian back to Pianosa, says you've always got to do what your commanding officer tells you to. But 27th Air Force says I can go home with 40 missions. But they don't say you have to go home. 
and regulations do say you have to obey every order. That's the catch. Even if the colonel were disobeying a 27th Air Force order by making you fly more missions, you'd still have to fly them, or you'd be guilty of disobeying an order of his. And then 27th Air Force headquarters would really jump on you. Yasserian thumped with disappointment. Then I really have to fly the 50 missions, don't I? He grieved. The 55, Dr. Neek corrected him. What, 55? The 55 missions the colonel now wants all of you to fly. Hungry Joe heaved a huge sigh of relief when he heard Dr. Nika and broke into a grin. Yasserian grabbed Hungry Joe by the neck and made him fly them right back to ex-PFC Wintergreen. What would they do to me, he asked in confidential tones, if I refused to fly them. We'd probably shoot you, ex-PFC Wintergreen replied. We, Yasserian cried in surprise. What do you mean, we, since when are you on their side? If you're going to be shot, whose side do you expect me to be on, ex-PFC Wintergreen retorted. Yasarian winced. Colonel Cathcart had raised him again. Uh, yeah, it's frustrating. It's interesting how he he grabbed Hungry Joe, and he's like, "No, you you're coming with me. You need to get out of here. Like, you need to go." And that's established right at the beginning. Like, he needs to leave. There's he's he's been broken. Yeah, he's only happy when he's putting his life on the line. When he's got time to reflect on himself he has those nightmares that wake up the whole camp well except for uh captain flume apparently even though even though when he's sleeping he's Um, dreaming of being awake not flume flume apparently sleeps and then his house his housemate his tent mate apparently also sleeps it was the cat cat dude flume no 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 i'm i'm talking about chief white half oats bunkmate what yes no but the person who says that he doesn't hear anything. Yeah, that's not who I'm talking about. Captain Flume okay. was the one who um, dreams of being awake. That's what I was getting to. Yeah, but Flume was also saying that he... So he, he's... he's but the, Flume uh, was saying he was hearing... So when Flume was being described, it's like Flume was looking forward to the sound, the sounds of the screaming, right? From Angry Joe. That bit's really confusing because it says, oh, but he actually does sleep. He just dreams that he's awake. And then he's exhausted. Yes. But the thing is that it was saying also that he was getting frustrated enough with Hungry Joe screaming that he wanted uh, Chief Half-White to kill him. So there's a, yeah. there's a contradiction there. But, but then there was also a line later on where like it, it said that Captain Flynn was the only one who actually got any sleep in that place. Yes. But the thing is, it's because he dreams that he's awake and he's listening to the screaming. So it's very confusing. But you're right. It, um, I think it's uh, it's not Arfie. Uh, it's Hubble who's the one yes, who Hubble. shares the bunk with uh, the tent story with with Hungry uh, Joe. But Hungry he Joe. says he's not hearing him. But at the same time, he also was trying to he he tried to be uh, defiant when it came to the watch, and then ended up doing what mm. he got told to do anyway. We also got a brief fist fight in the tent. Which is how Chief White half became Dr. Nika's tent mate. Yes. Uh, the justification being that we need to keep him in good health to punch this dude in the nose again. <laughs> yes. Because Dreedle hates his son-in-law. Yes. General Moodus, Just... isn't it? Sorry, uh, Colonel Moodus. Yes, Colonel Moodus. And Cathcart's a real piece of work. Yeah, uh... Even when he told Major Major that he's uh, becoming squadron leader, he, he like quickly drives up. He's like, "You're squadron leader," and then he 
doesn't win AD and drives It doesn't off. mean anything. And then, yes, yeah, it screws him up, really. And, and, and poor Major, before. Major, because he's like, oh, I was getting close to having friends. And now because I'm their leader, that's that's gone. Yeah, because, well, there's there's also rules about fraternization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a mess. And, and uh. just, you know, it's happened a few chapters. We never called attention to it. But the fact his name is Major Major. Yeah, yeah, but. Unless he is a major, major. Well, I, I think that's what's implied. His name's Major, and he's a major. Yeah, but there's also a title, Major, Major. As in, you can be a major, major, but it depends on which. Oh, military I didn't know you're that. In. Yeah, it depends on the military you're in. It's a weird. Uh, I think that might be a British thing rather than a American thing. Mm. Um, although I'm conf- I wonder if it, it, the Marines might have that, but he, I mean he's Air Force, so no. In the Air Force, I don't think there's a major major. Yeah, it gets interesting. I, I'm like, I, it's just kind of that. That chapter was more a mess than usual, I think. Well, this chapter was a lot more like Hungry Joe. We get a glimpse of like well, this is why he's the way he is, mm. and. That he's he's messed like completely. This environment is completely shattering him as a person, hmm. and it's because of the the way that this organization, like I me, mean, the, the the way that it's run, the way that this twenty five missions. Oh no, okay, you need to do another. You need to do thirty. Oh no, actually, you need to do fifty. Oh no, like <laughs> because I know my men can do more. But it's not just, I know my men can do more. It's like that catch-22 of you mm. need to obey a superior officer. Yep. But the, even though the policy is that when you've done the certain number of missions, you can leave. Yeah, no one's ever ordered you to go home. Yes, and therefore you can't go home. Like So unless you receive orders to go, you can't go. And it would have to be some, someone who's superior to your superior officer. And then, you know, finally just uh, done with the whole thing. Yasserian's like, and what would happen to him? He flies back. And he's like, what would happen to me if I don't fly in missions? And be yeah, I don't know if it was... I don't even know if he was referring to himself. I think he said, if I didn't want to fly them. But he was trying to figure it out, I think, for Hungry Joe. Oh, well, I, I suppose we'd shoot you. Shoot me? We? Whose side are you on? And it's like, well, when it comes to shooting you, which side do you think I want to be on? <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to be shot. Yeah, it's like, yeah, because you'd be uh, assisting. Yeah, it's a bit of a there. There's the inability to like these rules and regulations are are a bit of a mess. The same way with that catch twenty two. Danica's useless. Yes, he is. And he's really spiteful. Like really, yeah. the fact <laughs> that he can only like any other doctor, hopefully, would know would recognize that Hungry Joe needs to go. I mean, I wondered if that's where the next step will be when we finally find out what happens to Havemeyer post the tent shooting, what that would actually look like. Whether whether what happens is that Joe gets sent either to... I, it would depend on Danica. Danica would have to declare that he was mentally unwell. Yeah, and and I also wonder if... Which he his, is. But I wonder if Danica's hands are tied in that... the. There's like a hoop he has to jump through in order to declare. Oh, no, he uh, did. He mentioned the, the the hoop. The hoop was he can't declare someone mad until they come up to him and say, I think I'm mad. So he he was saying that in the previous cha- that previous chapter was he can't, unless someone is, someone comes up to him and says, I don't think I'm fit to fly because I, I like, 
I think, but then he said, but if you come to me and you say you're not well, you say you're, you're, you're um, mentally unwell, then by that definition, I, you, you are well because no one else would want to be here. So you are technically being saying you're rational. You're not irrational. You're rational for not wanting to fly in this. And, and that's, that's the catch on his side as well because, he, yeah, he's not actually able to diagnose someone as unfit yeah. for service. Which I don't think is necessarily accurate. I think that just might be Dr. Nika or it could be something that Colonel Cathcart has imposed on them. Or just within the fiction of the story. No, no. Yeah, maybe. Maybe in the fiction of this story. But the thing is, I, I think he's actually trying to stay true to what the kind of experience was. And as to whether this is a thing or whether the doctor is... I think the doctor has been ordered. So there's that catch-22, like, you need to obey a superior officer. And if he's told, you can only declare someone as being mad if they come up to you and you investigate, the, and, but, by the, but if they come up to you and tell you that they're, they're mad, then they're not. So, yes. Oh, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, I, I, I definitely felt the mess in that chapter more than others as I was reading through it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to, so we continue, and the next chapter is going to be about McWatch, so that'll be interesting to find out what's going on. Um, uh, there even, the, yeah, he got mentioned this time. Yeah, there, there was a small bit about um, someone died on a bombing run. Yeah. And that was because Colonel Cathcart had again made a promise to blow up this bridge within 24 hours, and they kept missing it, so they had to keep going back. Yeah, but there's also the bit where it was saying that part of it was because, what was it? Uh, it made sense in Kraft, who was de- dead um, because of the, them having to go do this. So the, it, this was in, interesting where it segued from, which was there's nothing wrong with nightmares. Everyone has nightmares every night. Yeah, why not? So, well, yes, given the circumstances. Well, actually, that makes sense. I can't argue with that. There's no fault in that logic. Um, and then it was like, this guy got killed. And this is how he died. And this is why, because Cathcart volunteered to have his men destroy. So, and yeah, there was a section. There was that, a section there. Arfie came up. Uh, they go. He, so it's seven days in a row, they went to attack this bridge. And when McWatt turned and Yasarian guided him in over the target for a second bomb, because Arfi was confused. And so it was because Arfi was confused, Yasarian had been unable to drop his bombs the first time. Okay. That's literally, it's because of Arfi. We. Yeah. And, and so I, you... I imagine in a war situation, yeah, one person doing the wrong thing could really get people killed. Yeah. There needs to be, I think, th- this is one of the reasons he's, I think he's extremely angry. He's like, there's an anger here, by, mm-hmm. or a frustration. Uh, it's a frustration anger kind of thing, like exhaustion um, with this whole mess. But yes, I can understand. I can relate. And um, um, there's the thing with, you mentioned Hunger Joe's Nightmares, where... Yeah he doesn't admit he has any, or he's very begrudgingly admitting them. He didn't admit he had them, but the way Hungry Joe is actually talking with with, uh, Yossarian is very... Well, he was saying, Yossarian was saying, when Hungry Joe looks good, he's actually at his worst, 
when he looks bad, he's actually at his best. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, and I wonder if part of that is because Yusarian is is saying when he looks good, he's actually denying the reality and he's completely denying that he needs help. But when he's looking at his worst, then he's in his, uh, sorry, when he's looking at his best, it's because he's aware that he needs help. So, you know, he looks his best, he is his worst. When he looks his worst, it's because the fact that he is aware that something is going on, he is more, he's, he's more in connection with reality. So when he looks good, he's probably disconnected from reality. He's not, he's denying everything. When he looks bad, it means it's because he's actually aware that this is, he shouldn't be here. Like it's enough. He shouldn't be in this space. And that makes yeah. sense. I also wonder if he's, um, he may have some sort of infection. Okay, well, because... I, I thought I thought you were gonna uh, zero in on uh, how little sounds everywhere drive him up the wall. And... Well, that was part of it. Like it, that's that can come from a whole bunch of different conditions. But I'm just thinking, also, he might have an infection, given that sexual health is not super great. Oh yeah, part part of that chapter. Uh, completely forgot about that because of the tenor yeah. of the chapter, but about how. His thing is photographing naked women, and he seems to have a knack to just be able to get all these Italian women to pose for him. Yet he, yep. he, 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 he like has a lust for them, yet he also kind of chastises himself for not being worthy enough to partake in what he wants. It's yeah. a weird um, dichotomy. Yeah, but I'm thinking that, yeah, there's, well, I mean, obviously there's a lot more going on. And, and you, um, you're talking about infection, Yasserian had the class. The reason, well, that's that's why the fact that that got raised in passing. So I think you've got a combination of, yes, trauma, like serious trauma, serious mental health problems, all these things. But I wonder also if we're, we're talking about issues such as syphilis or other things that can have an immediate neurological effect as well. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of these infections can cause some fairly severe neurological presentations. So ah. it's it's interesting. I I'm wanting to know what the medication is that the um was being encouraged by well that that Appleby ordered someone else to order Ysarian to take. I think it was a stimulant. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Joe is a bit of a mystery, but also Joe, I mean, he was a photographer. He was not, this was not. You, you know, the funny part about that, when I was reading how he was getting the women to pose for him in that broken English, I was like, what the heck? And then instantly my brain goes, they're in Italy, Dave. Obviously the, the prostitutes won't speak much English, if English at all. <laughs> not necessarily. Yes, exactly. They may not be able to speak English. Now, of course, that is no longer a relevant mm. thing but yes it's uh so that kind of thing is um yeah there's a lot going on in this chapter and pfc winter I, I still get confused when he says xpfc yeah so pfc's i think private first class so why why is his title being x pfc yeah maybe that's so, just another um absurdity yeah, on top of everything else. Well, I'm wondering if it's he's it's because Wintergreen technically should be home as well, but isn't. Hmm. I'm I'm sure we'll find out more about him. He's a fascinating character. Yeah, he's he's an interesting little ball of fun. 
But yes, so um, there's a lot going on, and it's interesting, and probably will have to continue in order to figure out more and more. So we're getting <laughs> we're getting little bits unraveled uh, slowly, which is great. I, I'm hoping. I think by the end of this book, I'm gonna go and find somewhere where they've taken each of these snippets and actually made a coherent timeline. I'm, I'm sure there's like a timeline chart out there. Yeah, there's got to be because it's otherwise it would be really difficult to follow. So yes, fascinating. Okay, well, until next time, uh, the music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs, composed by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. That's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. At the end of the podcast is, as always, I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rumikmoo, that's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O on Twitter, and you can find our podcast both on Twitter and Facebook at SMBSLT Podcast, and then you add an at gmail.com to get our email. Please get in touch if you have any insights, ideas for books, ideas for stories, comments, anything. You're welcome. Yeah, um, so until next week, folks, uh, stay safe, uh, keep well, and happy reading. Excellent. Okay. Thank you.